Thank you for joining us around the fire. For more information or to make a donation, please visit randomactsnetwork.com. Now, want to hear a scary story? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The children were always called Blue Eyes and Turkey. The elder was most like her dear father, who was far away at sea, and the mother would often say, Child, you've taken your father's eyes. For the father had the bluest of blue eyes. When the younger one was still a baby, her loud, rapid gurgling brought to mind the gobble of a beloved turkey that lived near the village. Along with a new baby... The mother and Blue Eyes and Turkey all lived together in a lonely cottage at the edge of the forest. The forest was so near that the garden at the back seemed to be part of it, and the tall fir trees were so close that their big black arms stretched over the little thatched roof, and when the moon shone upon them, their tangled shadows were all over the whitewashed walls. It was a long way to the village, nearly a mile and a half, and the mother had to work very hard and had no time to go herself to see if there was a letter at the post office from the dear father. The two children were very proud of being able to go alone, and when they came back tired from the long walk, there would be the mother waiting and watching for them, and the tea would be ready and the baby crowing with delight, and if by any chance there was a letter from the sea, then they were very happy indeed. The cottage room was so cozy. The walls were as white as snow, and against them hung cake tins and baking dishes, the lid of a large saucepan, and the fish slice, polished and shining bright as ever. On one side of the fireplace, above the bellows, hung the clock that always struck the wrong hour and was always running down too soon. But it was a good clock, with a little picture on its face. The baby's high chair stood in one corner, and in another there was a cupboard hung up high, in which the mother kept all manner of little surprises. Dear children, the mother said one afternoon late in the autumn. It is very chilly for you to go to the village. Don't be long now. Go the nearest way and don't look at any strangers you meet and be sure you do not talk with them. She kissed them and called them dear good children and they joyfully started on their way. The village was gayer than usual for there had been a fair the day before and the people who had made merry still hung about the streets as if reluctant to own that their holiday was over. Hmm, I wish we'd have come yesterday. Then we might have seen something, 
Look there. Turkey pointed to a stall covered with gingerbread, but the children had no money. At the end of the street, close to where the coaches stopped, an old man sat on the ground with his back resting against the wall of a house, and by him were two dogs. Evidently they were dancing dogs, the children thought, and longed to see them perform, but they seemed as tired as their master, and sat quite still beside him, looking as if they had not even a single wag left in their tails. Oh, I do wish we'd been here yesterday, Blue Eyes said again as they went on to the grocer's, which was also the post office. The postmistress was very busy weighing out half pounds of coffee, and when she had time to attend to the children, she only said that she had nothing for them and went on with what she was doing. Blue Eyes and Turkey turned away to return home, back slowly down the village street, past the man with the dogs again. One dog now sat up rather crookedly, looking very melancholy and rather ridiculous. They had walked some way, and just before they reached the bridge, they noticed, resting against a pile of stones, a strange, dark figure. At first, they thought it was someone asleep. Then they thought it was a poor old woman, ill and hungry. And then they saw that it was a strange, wild-looking girl who seemed very unhappy, and they felt sure that something was the matter. So they thought they would ask her to see if there was anything they could do to help her. The girl seemed to be tall and about 15 years old. She was dressed in very ragged clothes. Around her shoulders, there was an old brown shawl, which was torn at the corner that hung down the middle of her back. She wore no bonnet, and an old yellow handkerchief which she had tied around her head had fallen backwards and was all huddled up around her neck. Her hair was coal black and hung down, uncombed and unfastened, just anyhow. It was not very long, but it was very shiny, and it seemed to match her bright black eyes and her dark freckled skin. On her feet were coarse gray stockings and thick, shabby boots, which she had evidently forgotten to lace up. She had something hidden away under her shawl, but the children did not know what it was. She did not move or stir till they were within a yard of her. Then she wiped her eyes as if she had been crying bitterly and looked up. The children stood in front of her for a moment, wondering what they ought to do. "'Are you crying?' Turkey asked shyly. To their surprise, she said in an almost cheerful voice, "'Oh dear, no. Not at all. Quite the contrary. Are you?' They felt half a mind to walk away, for anyone could see that they were not crying. "'Perhaps you are lost?' "'Certainly not. How could I be lost when you have just found me? Besides, I live nearby.' The children were surprised at this, for they had never seen her before, and yet they thought they knew all the village folk by sight. "'What are you sitting on?' On a pear drum. The children wondered at the girl's most cheerful voice, for she looked cold and uncomfortable. What is a pear drum? I'm surprised you don't know. Most anyone in good society has one. And then she pulled it out and displayed it for them. The curious instrument was vaguely guitar-shaped, with three strings and two pegs by which to tune them. The third string was never tuned at all, and thus added to the singular effect produced by the village girl's music. And yet, oddly, the pear drum was not played by touching its strings, but by turning a little handle cunningly hidden on one side. But the strange thing about the pear drum was not the music it made, or the strings, or the handle, but a little square box attached to one side. The box had a little flat lid that appeared to be opened by a spring. That was all the children could make out at first. 
They were most anxious to see inside the box or to know what it contained, but they thought it might look curious to say so. The girl looked at her instrument with affection. It really is a most beautiful thing, a pear drum. It cost a great deal of money. I am very rich. And this, the children thought, a really remarkable statement, for they had not supposed that rich people dressed in old clothes or went about without bonnets. She might at least have done her hair, they thought. You don't look rich, Turkey blurted in as polite a voice as possible. <laughs> Perhaps not. You look rather shabby. Indeed? Well, a little shabbiness is very respectable. Just ask the others. She picked up the little box by the side of the pear drum, and the children wondered what she meant. Opening it, she spoke inside as if there was someone who could hear her. They've said I look rather shabby. Can you believe it? They don't believe I'm rich. You're not speaking to anyone. Oh, yes, I am. I'm speaking to them both. She looked down at the box in her hands. I have in here a little man and a little woman to match. He is dressed as a peasant and she's in a red petticoat with a white handkerchief pinned across her chest. When I play, they dance most beautifully. Oh, oh let, us do, see. let us see. The children cried with desperate curiosity. The village girl looked back at them with doubt in her eyes, finally saying, I'm afraid that I'm not sure if I can. Why not? Well, tell me, are you good children? Yes. Yes, yes, Ooh, yes we are we very are good. Very good. She closed the lid of the box as the children stared with astonishment. That was my worry. I'm afraid it's quite impossible. But, but we are we good. Are good. They cried again, thinking she had misheard. We are really very good, we promise. Mother always says so. Yes, I heard you before. Then can't you let us see the dancing man and woman? Oh dear, no. They can only be seen by naughty children. Naughty, naughty children? children? Oh yes. And the worse the children are, the better the dancing becomes. I really hoped to share it with you. I really did. If only you weren't so good. It was as if she was accusing them of some terrible crime. She put the pear drum carefully under her ragged cloak and prepared to go on her way. It requires a great deal of skill, being naughty. Well then, good day. And swiftly, she walked away. Will we find you in the village tomorrow? The girl continued on her way, while the children felt their eyes fill with tears and their hearts ache with disappointment. When their mother saw them, she was greatly astonished, and, fearing they were hurt, ran to meet them. Oh, my dear, dear children, what is the matter? But they did not dare tell their mother about the village girl. They promised that was wrong. But then why are you crying? Poor children, you must be tired and hungry. After tea, you'll feel much, much better. And she went back to the cottage, opening the window to let in the sweet, fresh air, and put the kettle on to boil. After placing the bread and tea things on the table, she called her daughters in a loving voice. Dear children, come and have your tea. But the children made no answer to their dear mother. They only stood still by the window and said nothing. Then Blue Eyes and Turkey turned round, and when they saw the tall loaf baked crisp and brown, and the cups all in a row and the jug of milk all waiting for them, they went to the table and sat down and felt a little happier. And the mother bounced the baby on her knee and sang little songs and laughed, and they thought of the father far away at sea and wondered what he would say to them all when he came home again. Then she looked up and saw that Turkey's eyes were full of tears. My dear little Turkey, what is the matter? Come to mother, my sweet. 
Come to your mother. Putting down the baby, she held out her arms, and Turkey, getting up from her chair, ran swiftly into them, sobbing. Oh, mother. Oh, dear mother. I do so want to be naughty. And then Blue Eyes left her chair also, and, rubbing her face against her mother's shoulder, cried sadly. And so do I, mother. Oh, I, I, I'd give anything to be very, very naughty. But my dear children, why do you want to be naughty? I should be very angry if you were naughty. But you could never be, for it would make me so unhappy. Why couldn't we? The mother thought a while before she answered, and when she did so, they hardly understood, perhaps because she seemed to be speaking rather to herself than to them. Because if one truly loves, then that love is stronger than all the bad feelings and conquers them. If the love is real, unkindness and wickedness have no power over it. The girls didn't know what she meant, and they continued crying. We do love you! We do! <laughs> then wipe the tears from your eyes. But we want to be naughty! Then I should know you did not love me. If we were very, very, very naughty and wouldn't be good, no matter what... Well, I should try to make you better. But if you couldn't... The mother's eyes filled with tears, a sob almost choking her. If you wouldn't be good, no matter what, I should have to go away and leave you. You couldn't. Yes, I could. But it would make me so unhappy. But we must have a mother. We're only children. I'd send you a new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail. But I will never leave you as long as you love me. We won't be naughty. We'll be good. We should hate the new mother, and she should never come here. And they clung to their own mother and kissed her fondly. But when they went to bed, they sobbed bitterly, for they remembered the little dancing man and woman and longed more than ever to see them. But how could they bear to hurt their own mother in that way? Good day. Blue Eyes and Turkey approached the girl, who was once again sitting by the heap of stones. It was as if she had never moved from the day before. The weather is really charming. The children took no notice of her greeting. Are the little man and woman there? Of course. They are both here and quite well. The little man tips his hat to the lady. It is so romantic. And the little woman has heard a secret. She tells it while she dances. The children begged to see. Quite impossible, I assure you. You are too good. But mother says if we are naughty, she will go away and send home a new mother. Indeed, that is what they all say. What do you mean? They all threaten that kind of thing. But I fear you could not be naughty even if you tried. Please show us, and we will be so naughty when we return home. Certainly not beforehand. But if we are very naughty tonight, will you show them to us when we return? Questions asked today are always better answered tomorrow. The girl turned round and walked on. For a few minutes, they stood still looking after her. Then they broke down and cried. Turkey was the first to wipe away her tears. Together, all the way home, they planned how to begin being naughty. And that afternoon, the dear mother was sorely distressed. For instead of sitting at their tea as usual with smiling, happy faces, they broke their mugs and threw their bread and butter on the floor. And when their mother told them to do one thing, they carefully went and did another. 
And as for helping to put away, they left her to do it all by herself, and only stamped their feet with rage when she told them to go upstairs until they were good. We won't be good. We hate being good. We like being naughty very much. Don't you remember what I told you I should do if you were very, very naughty? There is no mother with a wooden tail and glass eyes, and if there were, we should just stick pins in her and send her away. But there is none. Then the mother's sadness became anger at last, and she sent them off to bed. They spent the night laughing with joy, jumping in their beds, and singing merry songs at the top of their voices. The next morning, without asking, the children got up and ran off as fast as they could over the fields towards the bridge to look for the village girl. She was sitting, as usual, by the heap of stones with the pear drum under her shawl. They told her the things they had done and how angry their mother had been. But the girl kept the pear drum carefully hidden. We were very naughty. So naughty we were sent to bed. If you were really naughty, you wouldn't have gone to bed at all. But, you see, you can't help it. It takes such skill to be naughty well. But we broke our mugs and... We dropped our bread to the floor. The kitchen was foul. Mere trifles. Did you throw cold water on the fire? Did you break the clock? Did you pull all the tins down from the walls and throw them on the floor? No! exclaimed the children, aghast. We could not do that. I thought not. So many people mistake a little noise and foolishness for real naughtiness. Well, good day. And before they could say another word, she had vanished. So the children went home and did all the things she said. They threw water on the fire. They pulled down the baking dish and the cake tin, the fish slice and the lid of the saucepan, and banged them on the floor. They broke the clock and danced on the butter. They turned everything upside down, and then they sat still and wondered if they were naughty enough. And when the mother saw all that they had done, she did not scold them as she had before. She just broke down and cried, and then looked at the children and said sadly, My poor blue eyes and turkey, what has become of you? Unless you are good tomorrow, unless you show me that you love me, I shall indeed have to go away and come back no more. And the new mother I told you of will come to you. They did not believe her, yet their hearts ached when they saw how unhappy she looked, and they thought within themselves that once they had seen the little man and woman dance, they would be good forever afterwards. The next morning, before the birds were stirring or the flowers had wiped their eyes ready for the day, the children crept out of the cottage and ran across the fields. They did not think the village girl would be up so very early, but their hearts had ached so much at the sight of their mother's sad face that they had not been able to sleep, and they longed to know if they had been naughty enough— and if they might just once hear the pear drum and see the little man and woman dance. To their surprise, they found the village girl sitting by the heap of stones, and they noticed that the box containing the little man and woman was open, but she closed it quickly when she saw them. They excitedly told her everything they'd done. The girl looked at them curiously, then drew the yellow silk handkerchief that she sometimes wore around her head out of her pocket and began smoothing out the creases in it with her hands. You seem really quite excited. But the girl only went on smoothing out her handkerchief. I am so very particular about my dress. They could hardly listen to her in their excitement. We have been so very naughty, and Mother says she will go away today and send home a new mother if we are not good. Indeed, there is an endless variety in language. 
The things people say are so singular and amusing. The children did not understand. But if she goes, what shall we do? People go and people come. First they go, and then they come. Perhaps she will go before she comes. She really couldn't come before she goes. Oh, you had better go back and be good. You're really not clever enough to be anything else. But we did all the things you told us. You didn't throw the looking glass out of the window or stand the baby on its head. No, we didn't do that. I thought not. Well, good day. I shall not be here tomorrow. Please just let us see them once. Well, I shall go past your cottage at 11 o'clock this morning. Perhaps I shall play the pear drum as I go by. And will you show us the man and woman? Quite impossible, unless you really deserved it. Make-believe naughtiness is only spoiled goodness. It's a waste of time, I fear. But of course, I should not like to interfere with you. 11 o'clock, I shall be quite punctual. I'm very particular about my engagements. Then again, the children went home and were naughty. Oh, so very, very naughty that the dear mother's heart ached and her eyes filled with tears. And at last, she went upstairs and slowly put on her best gown and her new sunbonnet. And she dressed the baby all in its Sunday clothes. And then she came down and stood before Blue Eyes and Turkey. And just as she did so, Turkey threw the looking glass out of the window and it fell with a loud crash upon the ground. (laughs) Goodbye, my children. Goodbye, my blue eyes. Goodbye, my turkey. Oh, my poor children. (laughs) Weeping bitterly, the mother kissed the children and took the baby into her arms. The new mother will be here presently. It seemed as if the children were spellbound, and they could not follow her. They opened the window wide and called after her, but the mother only looked round and shook her head, and they could see the tears falling down her cheeks. They cried and cried, but still the mother went across the fields. Just before she could no longer be seen, she stopped and turned and waved her handkerchief, all wet with tears, to the children at the window. She made the baby kiss its hand, and in a moment, mother and baby had vanished from their sight. Then the children felt their hearts ache with sorrow, and they cried bitterly just as their mother had done, and they could not believe that she had gone. Surely she would come back, they thought. She would not leave them all together, but oh, if she did. And then the broken clock struck eleven, and they looked at each other while their hearts stood still, and they rushed to the open window. They saw the village girl coming towards them from the fields, dancing along and playing the pear drum as she did so. Behind her... Walking slowly was the man with the dogs whom they had seen on the first day they met the girl. He was playing a flute with a strange, shrill sound, and after the man followed the two dogs, slowly waltzing round and round on their hind leg. We have done all you told us! Blue Eyes called when she had recovered from the astonishment. Come and see! The girl did not cease her playing or her dancing, but called out above the music, You did it all badly! You threw the water on the wrong side of the fire. The tin things were not quite in the middle of the room. The clock was not broken enough. You did not stand the baby on its head. But our mother has gone away. Show us the little man and woman now and let us hear the secret. The girl was just in front of the cottage, but she did not stop playing. The sound of the strings seemed to go through their hearts. She did not stop dancing. She was already passing by the cottage. And still the man followed her, playing shrilly on his flute, and still the two dogs waltzed round and round after him. On they went, all of them, together. 
The children ran from the house, begging the girl to stop and show them the dancing couple. She turned around, still dancing to the music, and held the box out before them. The little man and the woman have gone away. See, their box is empty. And then, for the first time, the children saw that the lid of the box was raised and hanging back, and that no little man and woman were in it. But our mother is gone! Will she ever come back? The girl turned and continued on towards the long road leading out of the city. No, she'll never come back. I saw her by the bridge. She took a boat up on the river. She is sailing to the sea. She will meet your father once again, and they will go sailing to countries far away. The children cried out but could say no more, for their hearts seemed to be breaking. Then the girl, her voice getting fainter and fainter in the distance, called out once more to them before vanishing altogether. Your new mother is coming. She is already on her way. The children looked at each other, and the little cottage home, that only a week before had been so bright and happy, so cozy and so spotless. The fire was out, and the tins and dishes and bits of bread were all lying on the floor, and there was the broken clock, no time on its face. There was the cupboard on the wall, no sweet surprise on its shelf, and the baby's high chair, but no little baby to sit in it. In the midst of it all stood the children, looking at the wreck they had made. I wish we had never seen the village girl at all. Surely mother will come back. She knows we shall die if she doesn't come back. I don't know what we shall do if the new mother comes. I shall never, never like any other mother. We won't let her in. We will bolt the door and shut the window, and we won't take any notice when she knocks. So they bolted the door and shut the window, and all through the afternoon they sat watching and listening for fear of the new mother. But they saw and heard nothing of her, and gradually they became less and less afraid lest she should come. When it was dinner time, they were very hungry, but they could only find some stale bread. Then they thought that perhaps when it was dark, their own dear mother would come home, and she would forgive them. And then Blue Eyes thought that when their mother returned, she would be very cold. So they crept out the back door to gather wood, and at last they made a fire. With the fire burning bright, they began to be happy again, and to feel certain that their own mother would return. And the sight of the pleasant fire reminded them of all the times she had waited for them to come home from the post office, and of how she had welcomed them and comforted them, and given them nice warm tea and sweet bread and talked to them. Oh, how sorry they were they had been naughty, and all for that nasty village girl. They did not care a bit about the little man and woman now, or want to hear the secret. They fetched a pail of water and washed the floor. They scrubbed the tins till they looked bright again, and, putting a footstool on a chair, carefully hung the things in their places. And then they picked up the broken mugs and made the room as neat as they could. They took down the tea tray and got out the cups and put the kettle on the fire to boil, and made everything look as homelike as they could, till it looked as if their dear mother's hands had been busy about it. At last all was ready, and Blue Eyes and Turkey washed their faces and their hands, and then sat and waited. The children had fallen asleep, and the fire was dim and low when a loud knocking at the door woke them at the table. Their hearts stood still as the terrible knocking rang again. They knew it could not be their own mother, for she would have turned the handle and tried to come in without knocking at all. The new mother is here. What shall we do? We won't let her in. And again came a loud and horrible knocking at the door. We won't go away! The awful hammering continued. 
Blue Eyes, in fear and trembling, put her back against the door as Turkey went to the window, peeping out. She could just see a black satin bonnet with a frill around the edge and a long, bony arm carrying a black leather bag. For a second, she swore she saw the flashing of two glass eyes. What shall we do? The door shook and rattled with the terrible knocking. Afraid it would break, Turkey joined with her back against the door, and the rattling stopped. For a long, terrible moment, all was still. Perhaps the new mother had made up her mind to go away. And then, with a fearful blow, the little painted door was cracked and splintered. With a shriek, the children darted from the spot and fled out the back door into the forest beyond. All night long, they stayed in the darkness and the cold, and all the next day, and when the darkness had fallen and the night was still once again, hand in hand, Blue Eyes and Turkey crept back to the home where they were once so happy, and with beating hearts, they looked through the window. The mother was at the stove. Her long, heavy wooden tail thumped into the cabinets as she turned, blinding the children with the glare of her cracked glass eyes. The New Mother, told by Dana Maisel, featuring Joyce Clowden, Hannah Mary Simpson, and Ashlyn Seehafer, adapted from the story by Lucy Clifford. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. No man could say what had become of Jeremy Lester, the last resident owner of the Whitaker estate. He was in the parlor one Christmas Eve, and by the next morning had disappeared. Overnight, one Mr. Worley, a great friend of Jeremy's, had sat playing cards with him until after 12 o'clock. Then he took leave and rode home under the moonlight. After that, no person, as far as could be ascertained, ever saw Jeremy Lester alive. His ways of life had not been the most respectable or regular, and it was not until the new year that his servants became seriously alarmed concerning his absence. Authorities set out on foot, searching as weeks and months passed by without the slightest clue of Jeremy's whereabouts. Advertisements ran, and rewards were offered, but still, Jeremy made no reappearance. 
Eventually, the estate was given to the heir, an overworked lawyer named Paul Lester. He took possession of the house in the dead of summer and settled in with his wife and her four children from a previous husband. But when the winter snows returned, he took his family back from where they'd come. He sold most of the land surrounding the house, boarded up the hall, hired a live-in caretaker, and never troubled himself further about the place. As time went on, people whispered that the house was haunted. The family had been living a life most only could dream of, and something must have caused the sudden departure. Forty-one years passed before Paul died and I succeeded to the Whitaker estate. There could not have been found in the world a happier pair than myself and my only sister, Claire. We'd never met the man, and what little we heard was unfavorable. At his hands, we'd never received a single benefit. Now, his loss was certainly our gain. The fortune, though, had been spent. Lester spent his years traveling and throwing lavish parties at his penthouse in the city. I quickly heard the absurd stories afloat about the house being haunted. Supposedly, Jeremy's spirit wandered the grounds, seen by poachers or playing children, or lovers searching for a quiet place beneath the elms. As for the caretaker, the third in residence since Lester's disappearance, he shook his head gravely when questioned. The first thing I did was proceed to the parlor, tear open the shutters, and let the bright August sun stream in upon the haunted chamber. It was an old-fashioned, plainly furnished room, with a large table in the center, a fireplace with a smaller table nearby, and chairs against the walls. There were figurines on the hearth, broken and rusty. There was a picture of some sea fight over the mantelpiece, while another work of art about equal in merit hung between the windows. Altogether, the room was utterly unromantic, and the ghosts flitted away as soon as I let the daylight inside. I made plans to redecorate, refurnish, and convert it into a pleasant morning room, and there were many other nooks and corners to explore, long neglected, filled with old chests and cupboards and the faces of our ancestors looking down from the walls. The overgrown garden, full of weeds, was filled with untamely shrubs and birdweed. There was grass on the paths and trailing brambles over the ground. Yet, the Whitaker estate looked quite pretty in its state of uncivilized picturesqueness. At the end of August, Claire and I decided on going abroad to take our long-talked-of holiday before the fine weather was past. We wandered the continent, seeing galleries in Paris, and became acquainted with a family after accidentally discovering that we were near neighbors back home. In fact, their property lay close beside the estate. Mr. and Mrs. Cronson were a delightful pair, and before long we were traveling in company. It was the middle of November when we arrived home to the Whitaker and found the place anything but pleasant. The walks were wet and sodden, the trees were leafless, there were no flowers. It had been a wet season, and the place looked miserable. The ghost stories we had laughed at while sunshine flooded in the room became less unreal when we had nothing but blazing fires and wax candles to dispel the gloom. They became even more real, as servant after servant left us to seek situations elsewhere, when noises grew frequent in the house, when we ourselves, Claire and I, with our own ears, heard the trampling and banging that had been described to us. Being practical people, and unlike our predecessors, not having money to live where and how we liked, we decided to watch and see whether we could trace any human influence in the matter. If not, it was agreed we were to pull down the right wing of the house and the principal staircase. 
For nights and nights, we sat up till two or three o'clock in the morning. I read book after book as Claire engaged in needlework, with a revolver lying on the table between us. But nothing, neither sound nor appearance, rewarded our vigil. This confirmed my first ideas that the sounds were not supernatural, but just to test the matter, I determined, on Christmas Eve, the anniversary of Mr. Jeremy Lester's disappearance, to keep watch myself in the red bedroom. Even to Claire, I never mentioned my intention. About ten, we each retired to rest. I noisily shut the door of my room, and when I opened it half an hour afterwards, no mouse could have moved along the corridor with greater silence than myself. I sat in darkness in the red room. When the moon rose high, strange lights cast across the floor and walls of the haunted chamber. But no sound broke the silence. I had dropped into a slumber when I was waked by the sound of the door softly opening. John, John, are you here? said my sister, just above a whisper. I'm here, I answered. They're in the parlor. I did not need any further explanation as to whom she meant, and crept down the stairs after her, warned by an uplifted hand at the necessity for silence and caution. Dreamlike music echoed softly from the parlor, which we had left in darkness. Now a bright fire blazed with flickering candles adorning the chimney piece, and the small table pulled from its corner, where two men sat playing cards. It looked like they'd just returned from a great party. The younger man was decorated with the costume of a bygone period, and powdered hair with lace ruffles on his wrists. His little finger wore a sparkling ring, with a matching diamond on the front of his shirt. There were diamond buckles in his shoes, and he wore knee breeches and silk stockings, which showed off advantageously the shape of a remarkably good leg and ankle. The man was Jeremy Lester, who had been missing for 41 years that very night. He sat opposite the door, but never once lifted his eyes. His attention seemed concentrated on the cards. In the doorway we stood, holding our breath, terrified and yet fascinated by the scene before us. The ashes dropped on the hearth, softly, like the snow. We could hear the rustle of the cards as they were dealt out and fell upon the table, but there was no word spoken till, at length, the player whose face we could not see exclaimed, I win! The game is mine! But Jeremy took up the cards and flung them in his guest's face, exclaiming, Cheat! Liar! Take that! There was a bustle and confusion, and we could not hear a sentence which was uttered. All at once, however, Jeremy Lester strode out of the room in so great a hurry that he almost touched us where we stood, and tramp, tramp, trampled up the staircase to the red room. He returned with two rapiers, and they walked into the night air. We followed through the garden and down a narrow, winding walk to a smooth piece of turf, sheltered from the north by trees. The moon was still bright, and we could distinctly see Jeremy Lester hovering just above the ground. A handsomer fellow I had never beheld. When you say three... He said at last to his opponent. One... Began the man, whose face remained in shadow. Two... And before Jeremy had the slightest suspicion, the man was on him, plunging his rapier straight through his breast. Claire screamed aloud, and the combatants disappeared, and the moon was obscured behind a cloud. We shivered with cold and terror, 
but we knew at last what had become of the late owner of the Whitaker, foully murdered by a false friend. When late on Christmas morning I awoke, it was to see a white world, such snow as no person could remember having fallen for 41 years. When the snow melted away, we searched the property, and in a shallow grave within the plantation, Jeremy Lester's body was found. He still wore his diamonds, the grayed ring sitting loosely on a rotting little finger bone. We were never taken seriously when we shared the events of that Christmas Eve. The Cronsons returned to their property for the first time since their vacation, having visited Mr. Cronson's ailing father, and invited us over for lunch. As they led us to the garden, Claire dropped the glass she carried, and it shattered across the floor. John! She exclaimed, face as white as the tablecloth. She was staring at a portrait on the wall. That's him! What happened next, I have only the vaguest recollection. Servants rushed in, and Mrs. Cronson fell from her chair in hysterics. Her four crying daughters gathered round. Mr. Cronson furiously attempted some explanation as Claire begged to leave, only to be taken away. I took her away, not only from the Cronson property, but from the Whitaker estate. I returned to speak with Mr. Cronson, who shared that the portrait Claire identified was his wife's father, Jeremy's friend, and the last man to see him alive. The man had confessed everything to his son just before he died. You won't bring further sorrow upon us by making this matter public? He asked me. I promised him I would keep silence, and similarly, the house was peaceful after that Christmas night. But eventually, the story oozed out of me, and the Cronsons moved away. My sister married and left for the city, never to return to the Whitaker estate. But for myself, I adore the aging home. It is said that in Ulthar, which lies beyond the river sky, no man may kill a cat. And this I can verily believe, as I who gaze upon him who sitteth purring before the fire. For the cat is cryptic, and close to strange things which man cannot see. He is the soul of antique Egyptus, and bearer of tales from forgotten cities in Meroe and Ophir. He is the kin of the jungle's lords, and heir to the secrets of hoary and sinister Africa. The Sphinx is his cousin, and he speaks her language, but he is more ancient than the Sphinx, and remembers that which she hath forgotten. In Ulfthar, before ever the Burgesses forbade the killings of cats, there dwelt an old cotter and his wife who delighted to trap and slay the cats of their neighbors. Why they did this I know not, save that many hate the voice of the cat in the night, 
and take it ill that cats should run stealthily about yards and gardens at twilight. But whatever the reason, this old man and woman took pleasure in trapping and slaying every cat which came near their hollow. And from some of the sounds heard after dark, many villagers fancied that the manner of slaying was exceedingly peculiar. But the villagers did not discuss such things with the old man and his wife because of the habitual expression on the withered faces of the two, and because their cottage was so small and so darkly hidden under spreading oaks at the back of a neglected yard. In truth, much as the owners of the cats hated these odd folks, they feared them more, and instead of berating them as brutal assassins, merely took care that no cherished pet or mouser should stray towards the remote hovel under the dark trees. When, through some unavoidable oversight, a cat was missed and sounds heard after dark, the loser would lament impotently or console himself by thanking fate that it was not one of his children who had thus vanished. For the people of Ulthar were simple and knew not whence it is all cats first came. One day, a caravan of strange wanderers from the south entered the narrow, cobbled streets of Ulthar. Dark wanderers they were, and unlike the other roving folk who passed through the village twice every year, in the marketplace they sold fortunes for silver and bought gay beads from the merchants. What was the land of these wanderers none could tell, but it was seen that they were given to strange prayers, and that they had painted on the sides of their wagons strange figures with humanoid bodies and the heads of cats, hawks, rams, and lions. And the leader of the caravan wore a headdress with two horns and a curious disc betwixt the horns. There was, in this singular caravan, a little boy with no father or mother but only a tiny black kitten to cherish. The plague had not been kind to him, yet had left him this small furry thing to mitigate his sorrows. And when one is very young, one can find great relief in the lively antics of a black kitten. So the boy whom the dark people called Menes smiled more often than he wept as he sat playing with his graceful kitten on the steps of an oddly painted wagon. On the third morning of the wanderer's stay in Ulthar, Menes could not find his kitten, and as he sobbed aloud in the marketplace, certain villagers told him of the old man and his wife, and of sounds heard in the night. And when he heard these things, his sobbing gave place to meditation, and finally to prayer. He stretched out his arms towards the sun and prayed in a tongue no villager could understand, though indeed the villagers did not try very hard to understand, since their attention was mostly taken up by the sky and the odd shapes the clouds were assuming. It was very peculiar, but as the little boy uttered his petition, there seemed to form overhead the shadowy, nebulous figures of exotic things of hybrid creatures crowned with horn-flanked discs. Nature's full of such illusions to impress the imaginative. That night, the wanderers left Ulthar, 
and were never seen again. And the households were troubled when they noticed that in all the village there was not a cat to be found. From each hearth the familiar cat had vanished. Cats large and small, black, gray, striped, yellow, and white. Old Cranon, the burgomaster, swore that the dark folk had taken the cats away in revenge for the killing of Mene's kitten, and cursed the caravan and the little boy. But Nith, the lean notary, declared that the old cotter and his wife were more likely persons to suspect, for their hatred of cats was notorious and increasingly bold. Still, no one durst complain to the sinister couple, even when little Atal, the innkeeper's son, vowed that he had at twilight seen all the cats of Ulthar in that accursed yard under the trees, pacing very slowly and solemnly in a circle around the cottage, two abreast, as if in performance of some unheard-of rite of beasts. The villagers did not know how much to believe from so small a boy, and though they feared that the evil pair had charmed the cats to their death, they preferred not to chide the old cotter till they met him outside his dark and repellent yard. So Ulthar went to sleep in vain anger, and when the people awakened at dawn, behold, every cat was back at his accustomed hearth, large and small, black and gray, striped yellow and white. None was missing. Very sleek and fat did the cats appear, and sonorous with purring content. The citizens talked with one another of the affair, and marveled not a little. Old Cranon again insisted that it was the dark folk who had taken them, since cats did not return alive from the cottage of the ancient man and his wife. But all agreed on one thing, that the refusal of all the cats to eat their portions of meat or drink their saucers of milk was exceedingly curious. And for two whole days, the sleek, lazy cats of Ulthar would touch no food, but only doze by the fire or in the sun. It was fully a week before the villagers noticed that no lights were appearing at dusk in the windows of the cottage under the trees. Then the lean Nith remarked that no one had seen the old man or his wife since the night the cats were away. In another week, the Burgermeister decided to overcome his fears and call at the strangely silent dwelling as a matter of duty, though in doing so he was careful to take with him Shang the blacksmith and Thul the cutter of stone as witnesses. And when they had broken down the frail door, they found only this, two cleanly picked human skeletons on the earthen floor and a number of singular beetles crawling in the shadowy corners. There was, subsequently, much talk among the Burgesses of Ulthar. Zath, the coroner, disputed at length with Nith, the lead notary, and Cranon and Shang and Thal were overwhelmed with the questions. Even little Atal, the innkeeper's son, was closely questioned and given a sweetmeat as reward. They talked of the old cotter and his wife, of the caravan of dark wanderers, of small Menes and his black kitten, of the prayer of Menes and of the sky during that prayer, of the doings of the cats on the night the caravan left, and of what was later found in the cottage under the dark trees in the repellent yard. 
and in the end the Burgesses passed that remarkable law which is told by traders in Hatheg and discussed by travelers in Nier, namely, that in Ulthar, no man may kill a cat. Mad Henry was a hermit who lived alone in a decrepit mansion at the edge of town. Rumors were rife about the wild-eyed man. Some folks said that he was a magician who called upon the powers of darkness to wreak havoc upon his neighbors. Others called him a mad doctor who could restore life to foul corpses from the local cemetery. No respectable citizen in town had anything to do with Mad Henry. Then one year, a new family moved to town with a lovely daughter, Rachel, who caught Mad Henry's eye. He showered the maiden with gifts, goblets of pure gold, necklaces of pearl, and a pot of daisies that never dropped a single petal. Despite the gifts, Rachel fell in love with another, Jeffrey, a handsome young man just home from university. A week after meeting, they eloped, leaving behind a stunned Mad Henry. When the couple returned from their elopement, they threw a big ball and invited everyone in town. While Rachel was waltzing with her father, she heard a clap of thunder. Lightning flashed again and again. Suddenly, the double doors flew open and a breeze whirled in, bringing with it smell of dead, decaying things. Mad Henry loomed in the doorway, pupils gleaming red with anger. He was followed by the grotesque figures of the dead, who came marching two by two into the room. Their eye sockets glowed with blue fire as they surrounded the room. Two of the corpses captured Geoffrey and threw him down at the feet of their lord. Red eyes gleaming, Mad Henry drew a silver-bladed knife and casually cut the bridegroom's throat from ear to ear. Rachel screamed and ran forward, pushing through the foul, stinking corpses of the dead and flung herself upon her dying husband. Kill us both, she cried desperately. But Mad Henry plucked her out of the pool of blood surrounding her dead husband and carried her out into the thundering night. Behind him, the army of the dead turned from the grisly scene and followed their master. The sounds of thunder and lightning faded away as the alchemist and his dead companions disappeared into the dark night. The bride and groom's fathers gathered a small mob and followed the evil hermit, intent upon saving Rachel. When they searched Mad Henry's house, they found it completely empty save for a light which shone from a series of mysterious globes that bobbed near the ceiling of each room. Mad Henry had vanished, taking Rachel along with him. Jeffrey was buried in the local cemetery, and the dance hall was torn down. Search parties scoured the countryside for days, but turned up nothing. No one in town spoke about what had happened, 
and no one dared imagine what had become of poor Rachel. After a year had passed, a timid knock sounded upon the door of Rachel's parents' home. When her father opened it, he saw a gaunt, gray figure on the stoop. His beautiful daughter, Rachel, previously full of life, now dull with exhaustion and pain. With her tongue removed, she couldn't speak, but she produced a knife from her tattered garments. A knife they'd seen before in the hands of Mad Henry himself. The gleam of satisfaction in Rachel's eyes told them that the streaks of blood that coated the knife were those of her captor, and the parents welcomed their daughter back home. They sat her in their most comfortable chair before fetching blankets and bread and warm tea. But when they returned, Rachel was dead, sitting upright, with a peaceful smile upon her ravaged face. 